Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined today by Dr. Annabelle Shoemi Moore. She is a doctor, activist, and author, and she has written a brilliant book called Divided, Racism, Medicine, and Why We Need to Decolonize Healthcare. The book delves into the racial biases in healthcare that underlie major health inequities and the colonial history behind them. And this is what we're going to talk about today. She is a sexual health and reproductive registrar and founder of Reproductive Justice Initiative, which is a charity developing an inclusive approach to reproductive health and rights by addressing the complex social, economic and political factors that affect our reproductive lives. She frequently speaks and teaches, being a regular columnist for Galdem and featuring on TV and radio. Currently, she is a PhD candidate and Harold Moody Scholar at King's College London. Annabelle, you are working hard to make a difference in so, so many places. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. And yeah, that was a lovely intro. And uh, yeah, sad that Galdam is no more. Um, but what started mine and so many other people's um, writing journeys and, you know, book journeys. So yeah, thank you. My pleasure, honestly. So as a designer, I wanted to talk to you because I want to see how visual and service design can be used to address health inequities. So I read your book so I could first get a better understanding of why these inequities exist in the first place. And you take this really multi-dimensional approach to racism in healthcare. You look at it from the perspective of a black woman and a clinician, as well as from a historical, economic political vantage as well. And I believe this book should be read by everyone working in healthcare, especially those who want to address these glaring health inequities we see every day. It is such an engaging and well-written book. I couldn't speak more highly of it, honestly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your feedback and um, I'm glad you think it's impactful. And it was, you know, it's, I am a, a learner just like everybody else and you know my educational journey is no way complete and I think for me divided I really wanted to reflect that and I talk very much about you know my experiences from childhood to university to from my master's to you know even now doing like my my part-time PhD and just how you can gain more understanding in just very disparate places even Often traditionally, people feel like you have to go this linear educational path. And actually, um, I've learned things so much from organizing spaces and, you know, community work. And some of the best examples I have about, you know, the experiences people have and health inequities and barriers have not um, necessarily come through my clinical practice, but just me being out and about. So, yeah, I hope it reflects all those facets of uh, how I've learned and, that continued journey. Yeah, that is such a a really good point about a non-linear pathway. This is something I talk about really frequently on the podcast as well, that all of our experiences teach us something and you can't always just rely on a degree. Though they are important, there's also life as well that teaches us too. So yeah, thank you for saying that. 
So we'll dive a bit more into your your story as well. I know you just touched on it a little bit just now, but I just wanted to touch on your PhD first of all. So Harold Moody was a Jamaican-born physician based in South London, and he campaigned for racial equity and civil rights. And now you're on a program supporting Black people to complete PhDs at King's College London that's named after him. I just think it's so fitting considering the work that you do. Were you struck by the ties between his story and your work? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think it is a great honour to have, you know, a scholarship, studentship named after him and be part of uh, that programme. I think what we also have to remember is that actually the, the opportunity I've been given was new. Despite all the other things I do, I was struggling to navigate higher education, where to get funding, to find the supervisors that I thought would support me on that journey. And um, along came this um opportunity put out in Kings that I actually got to know about really last minute as well. That happened in 2020 because of all the conversations happening around, you know, anti-racism and um, looking at COVID. And it is somewhat also frustrating that in order to get this amazing scholarship at Kings, all of those events in 2020 had to culminate before somebody actually said, shouldn't we have something? that really highlights the uh, legacy of Harold Moody and his ties to King's College London. So for me, yeah, the parallels um, and even, you know, talking about all the work that he did in terms of uh, looking at uh, racial disadvantage, particularly for Black communities, trying to address some of that in healthcare and my own work is truly amazing, but it's also really frustrating in terms of when we talk about, in my work, I talk about neglected histories and despite his amazing legacy, Harold Moody has really been neglected. And despite being a black physician, British educated, I educated in Britain and in predominantly in the University of London, I found out about the legacy of Harold Moody really late. Amazing parallels, but also a lot of parallels in terms of the kind of whitewashing of history. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 such a, a good point that a lot of the the things that we are seeing, the changes that we're seeing now that are being celebrated, like this program, which is a really wonderful thing, have been hard fought for by us having to, you know campaign for the, well it wasn't even through this it wasn't specifically through this campaign but the kind of general zeitgeist of now we're being more aware about these things and um it's it's not come easily it's not necessarily just come voluntarily either a lot of the time so yeah I I get that kind of mixed emotions about something that is so helpful but also is it should have been there for a long time before this as well. What are you working on at the moment? Are you able to share a little bit about your PhD? My PhD is on the experiences of Black women in Britain with fertility control methods. Very much this is born also about my experiences. I'm a community sexual reproductive health registrar. I founded what is now the Reproductive Justice Initiative charity, what was called Decolonizing Contraception. And uh, sometimes people are like, how does this all link? But um, if you look at the legacy of kind of the family planning movement and why it started to gain more money and more traction is because of the eugenics movement. We could improve society if we could control who was reproducing. 
And those ideas still being very much around um, today, um, even if we just look at the example of COVID, the idea that it was like survival of the fittest and if people weren't able-bodied or they were old or they were socially economically disadvantaged and not being kind of uh, working and things like that, then actually if they got COVID and they didn't survive, then it was like, okay. Um, so I started looking very much at that history within my own specialty and discipline and how people conceive of motherhood and parenthood and some people being better parents and um, then being more useful to society. Looking at how, you know, we have these stereotypes around uh, motherhood and black women and, you know, certain people's sexualities. And then I just started looking at race and health more expansively. So when I'm looking at my PhD, I'm very much um, looking at that legacy within a British context. And often the idea is, particularly when we look around reproductive justice, is that it's born out of a a US context. Maybe it's not as relevant here. Maybe we don't have these problems here. And actually, when you look at British history, um, particularly looking at um, people that were second generation, uh, children of the Windrush generation, um, black women active politically during kind of the 70s, 80s, they were very much having these same discussions that we're almost having now. We feel that we experience very racist treatment, that people have these stereotypes about our sexuality. Um, when we go um, into hospitals to give birth, it's very racially charged. When we talk about, you know, our fertility, people feel like we are having too much sex and we can't get the advice and information. Um, so it's really studying that and where we've come from and the conversations we're having now and um, have they progressed, how have they progressed, you know, um, what are the key moments in the progression of that discussion and potentially trying to gain insights into some of what needs to, needs to happen. So we're not really going in a, quite a circular fashion because from the work I've done so far, it does often feel like actually it's just going around in a bit of a circle. Mm. Wow, this is such a, a huge topic, something that's really close to my heart as well, because obviously as a black woman myself, but also experiences of family members that I've seen when it comes to kind of reproductive health. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I'm looking forward to kind of the work that you put out relating to this. Um, and I think that you're right, it, it is something that needs to kind of progress forwards, I suppose. There's a lot more discussion around this at the moment. And um, yeah, I do want to ask you more about this. So come back to this topic. I suppose first, though, I want to ask you more about your journey, because I know in the book you share parts of your journey. You um, tell us stories kind of relating to the topics that you're, you're speaking about in the book. But can you tell us more about, you know, from the first moments that sparked your interest in racial biases in medicine to where you are today, having authored a book about it? Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, I think some of the interests and the things that I put into the book, I've been on a journey um, myself in terms of, um, I've always been interested, I suppose, in inequality um, and particularly black history. So at 
the school that I went to, I started an Afro-Caribbean society and I received quite a lot of pushback because it was, you know, quite a elitist private school. Um, and they had all these different societies for all these different cultural groups and religious groups, and they didn't have an Afro-Caribbean society. And I think when I founded it with some of my friends, there were only like about five black people in the year, and most of them were actually really interested in being part of the society. We got a lot of pushback because they thought we were trying to highlight that there weren't any black people really at the school and highlighting why that might be in terms of it being a private school and who can pay to be here and things like that rather than saying actually there's a lot to contribute people you know go and study African history they go and study all of these things at university there's a lot to discuss and I'm glad to say that still is at the, the school today and they've had amazing speakers and that's a legacy but that's just to say that I think I've always had this desire to have more conversations around the, the history and the contributions um, of Afro-Caribbean people. I didn't realise I went to medical school to be an orthopaedic surgeon because I had back surgery when I was um, 14. And I didn't expect to go to medical school necessarily and start seeing you know, all the disparities in healthcare that I saw, um, seeing some of the interactions that I saw, or even feeling the way that I felt as a black medical student, you know, that maybe that my intellect was never going to be up to par compared to my colleagues just because of my skin colour. People feeling that, you know, really actually feeling the way that you were going to have to work twice as hard as your peers because people had perceptions of you as soon as they saw you, whether that's patients or that's more senior clinicians. And I do feel that it was often quite overt. You know, we often talk about, and I speak about this in my book in a chapter called The Psychological Oppression and how it's also a slight psychological game because you can sometimes be second guessing yourself, right? But sometimes I was also, you know, experiencing always overt racism, you know, people saying things to me. And ultimately the experiences there that I experienced at medical school led me to this journey. You know, I would look at my cohort, I'd say there's really few medical students here um, that are of African and Caribbean backgrounds. When they do get here, their success rate is so much worse than their white counterparts. And I remember going to a talk that was analysing this across courses when I was maybe in my third year of university and looking at that attainment gap and what was going on. And it made me really reflect on what was happening at my ethical school. But it was always coming back to the same issues. And I would spend my spare time reading about the history of race and health, reading about some of the issues I've raised, like black women's treatment in healthcare. I started writing about things in Galvan, like topical issues that would come up. And I've always loved writing. And I think over time, I really knew that I wanted to write more about it. But then what ultimately happened is uh, in 2020, obviously we went into lockdown and it felt even more urgent that we start to have some of the conversations. And I started writing Decolonizing Healthcare for Gal then where I was talking about that history of race and health, even the ideas around COVID at the time, for example, that you know Black people won't get COVID because Africa looked like it wasn't being affected by COVID. And the idea that Black people maybe were immune, which obviously now seems a ludicrous suggestion, but those were the early discussions people seemed to be having. And it was really resonating with people. And then obviously you know, that led um, to, to writing Divided. But, you know, I wouldn't say that I set out to necessarily write Divided. 
but it's just, it really is a culmination of learning and I'm still on that journey. I felt like it was really important to share my own learning at this point because I feel that some of the conversations that people have in are really stuck and um, it would be nice to have a reference point for people to go back to um, and for other people to start these conversations in their institutions and spaces where they feel they're not being heard. Yeah, I think I think that obviously you've learned so, so much and it's so valuable for you to to share what you've learned so far in your journey so far. It's so helpful to other people as well. What I loved about this book is that you helped to articulate a lot of feelings and <laughs> just ideas that I felt or I had at the time when I was in medical school that was hard for me to put into words. I would often have these kinds of experiences and not be able to quite say why I was so frustrated with it and so it was it was really affirming actually to read your book for example you talk about the EGFR how this is measuring renal function for example how they correct for this and I remember when I was in medical school them saying if someone's even a little bit black you should correct their for for their blackness with their renal function absolutely and I think just to explain because I you know to listeners and things so when you measure someone's kidney function, um, which we often do if they're sick or they're unwell, there's a calculation that we often use called the EGFR and it has a multiplication that you're supposed to do for um, anybody that's black. And it's, it's different in different textbooks, you know, it says Afro-Caribbean in some textbooks, some textbooks it just says black. And I remember looking at this when I was in medical school and actually just being very confused because I was like, okay, you know, what does this mean in terms of who, which black people, you know? Mm. But as I said, you're just trying to get through medical school and you don't ask too many questions. And then when you do ask questions, sometimes people kind of look at you as if you're silly anyway. You know, you just kind of learn the equations. And I think particularly in healthcare, if you're not a scientist or you're an allied professional, like medics obviously do research, but, you know, often they're learning this science someone else has made to make a diagnosis. You're often find that people don't necessarily haven't really looked into <laughs> why we use a certain equation. People really take it as objective science and they don't interrogate the equations or even the policy or the pathway we're following. And when you drill down into it, you know, the reason we're using in this measurement is because a small study was done on predominantly African-American men. Um, it was deemed that their muscle mass was a bit higher in that study than the rest of the white cohorts. And lo and behold, it was assumed that this kind of applies to all quote unquote black people, which is such a ludicrous thing to assume when we know that that is such a diverse umbrella, you know, and as you rightly said, how, how what does that mean for people that were of mixed heritage? Mm, yeah, it's it's really interesting the way that it works in in medical school where they teach us how to critically assess a paper, uh, a scientific paper. But then when it comes to these kinds of inalienable truths, like the how we multiply the the renal function we're just told to just accept it in a sense so it, there's a lot of dichotomy in this and I see that through your work that you are challenging these kinds of things that don't really make sense that are not consistent that are you know making our experience worse for marginalized groups as well and so 
on this podcast, I talk often about how we can carve our own career and we can improve our own experience or the experience of other people of healthcare at the same time. And a big part of that is about challenging the status quo, which often means that we have to focus on areas and solve problems that no one asks us to solve. So we oftentimes are going to meet resistance, like you met resistance with starting the Afro-Caribbean society at your at your school. And so we have to kind of learn to give ourselves permission. So what was the resistance that you had to overcome to write this book, whether that was internally or externally? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, internally personal resistance. When you're discussing things that are considered taboo, which I often do, you also have to fight with yourself about, you know, whether you're strong enough to want to continue to have conversations, often conversations with people that can be very hostile. You then become either, you know, the race lady or, you know, whatever. And then people constantly associate you with that thing. And if they don't like that thing, automatically people have opinions about you. In this day and age, there's been this real effort to manufacture a kind of a culture war um, to feed into kind of political divisions, right? So it really helps people because then you get clear lines of where people will vote, voting blocks based on kind of single issues, right? And, you know, when we talk about race and things like that, people just put that all in this woke box, you know? So those are some of the barriers you face because you wonder whether you know, you're up for having these persistent conversations. It's very draining. It's very mentally taxing. It also makes you a target, particularly in these days online. So first of all, this is very deliberate because it scares people from having vital conversations. You know, um, if there's hostility around a conversation, then it requires certain people that are going to put themselves out there, um, take on an issue, knowing that there's possibly quite a lot to lose. Those are some of the internal battles. Um, in terms of some of the external battles, then, I mean, very much a lot of my learning has been self-led. So if you think about, you know, the fact that I'm on to, I think, uh, my fourth degree now, right? A lot of what I've needed to get myself to the point of doing my part-time PhD on this issue, I've been reading outside of my subject areas. So think about, you know, how widely read I've had to be in order to get this level of understanding. Whereas some people in their discipline, they're, they're, they're spoon fed through their syllabus to understand their subject area and to understand that issue. So going to find the information that I need has been sometimes a struggle because this isn't a subject area that people want to touch. This isn't a subject people want to confine it to the history books and say things like eugenics aren't relevant anymore. I interview Sahadra Das, who used to be the curator of the Golden Collection, the eugenics collection at UCL and how so many bits of that collection were kind of just, um, you know, in boxes, not being looked after because people were embarrassed about that history and didn't want people to find it. But actually, it's a very important part of history. So, even trying to get that information for people that are saying, actually, we really need to learn about this because it is relevant. These things do keep coming up again and again. You know, that's challenge, getting the information. And then, of course, you know, the, the naysayers and the people that don't want you to have these conversations because, as I said, they either don't think it's relevant or they think it's fraught or they they actually agree with you know, the idea that actually racially there's a hierarchy, these divisions should exist and they don't want you to be teaching anything else. And 
those kind of people, they're not always overt about their opinions. Sometimes they're just there in plain sight and you don't know that they feel that way. And they can be very obstructive, whether that's people during your educational process that will try to divert your interest elsewhere, whether they're sitting on a panel and they don't want to give you <laughs> your your scholarship or your funding or your research funding, whether they're in the publishing industry and they're, you know, gaslighting you, don't want to, you know, they're, they're, you know, give you the editing or the support you need to even market your book and put your book out there. Those people that will exist. And this is like most issues that are obviously polarizing. I'm not just saying it, it's relation into like racism and healthcare or, or decolonizing work. But, you know, there are challenges at every way. And when people see a book out there like divided in the world and they see you know, me existing and speaking on podcasts and platforms, it's not something that was given to me or that um, is even easy to maintain. There are challenges at every step of this process um, that you have to try to overcome. I think that is really good to to shed light on that, um, particularly as a black female writer and obviously that's not the only reason why we value your work but coming from that perspective there are loads of kind of obstacles when you're talking about this topic as well you can tell reading the book that it is very considered everything that you've written down and the arc of the the whole book as well it's all very clearly kind of laid out I know that your chapter around around sexual health for black people was a difficult chapter for you to write your reproductive and uh, sexual reproductive health register. So I was really, I was really keen to read what your thoughts were on racism and sexual health. And there's so much that you put in there, but I do remember that you said that it would be a difficult chapter to write. Can you talk about why that was the case for you? Yeah, I think that there is so much that I could say from my patient encounters, my community organizing encounters about this issue in terms of the, the chapter very much talks about sexual stereotyping, um, how we conceive of like the sexuality of races and, you know, some people is more docile and some people is more sexually promiscuous, where those ideas come from. And then how that feeds into, you know, even now more common things like dating practices, dating apps, how that's fed into narratives around like HIV and who gets access to medications. And um, because of the amount of information that I've encountered and the amount of personal experiences I have, and there are so many, you know, anecdotes from my clinical experience in the book, it was just very hard to make it more concise because in a way that in itself could have been its own chapter, right? And then obviously I want the book to read well for everybody and I want people to get something out of it. However, being a sexual reproductive health specialist, I know that people particularly are going to look at that area and want to delve into it deeper or I'm going to get more people that are in the same fields as me looking at that more and uh, what I've shared about that as well. So I definitely wanted to get it right. And I could have really even been more painstaking over that chapter um, because there is so much I covered there and some of it I had to give kind of a light touch because there's a word count and, <laughs> you know. Um, so all of these things made it really challenging. You know, it was an area that I really wanted to nail. I wanted to make 
some of the key problems in that area um, very clear. And I also had to just make some really difficult choices about what kind of points that I wanted to raise. Yeah. So for that reason, it was it was a challenging chapter. It, it was interesting to me because obviously we're surrounded by these kind of stereotypes of black people when it comes to sex. And I don't know why, but it took me a while to kind of realize how that feeds into our health as well. Um, and so, so it was really good to be able to make that link and be like, of course it does. Obviously it, it does. And I know you talked about there being so much information and experiences and all of these things that you know about this topic that you could have put into the book. What parts did you struggle the most to let go of that you would recommend people to read more on? Um, so do you mean across all chapters or? Um, I suppose we could just stick with this chapter with, with your chapter, um, they call her Jezebel. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, there, there are so many, uh, things that I kind of lightly touched upon. I think one thing I talk about a lot about kind of sexual stereotyping, um, a little bit, but I think that looking at that kind of more in depth, particularly how it plays into some of what we see in kind of dating, practicing dating apps and, you know, pornography and is a massive issue in terms of today where young people particularly get their ideas and their learning from. And if our kind of porn is quite racially charged, for example, then obviously people, young people particularly get a lot of meaning from that. So I think that is something important. It's really difficult to discuss because if you're not a sexual reproductive health specialist, people, particularly medical professionals, they don't want to talk about that. You know, <laughs> um, they're like, oh, we'll leave that to the professional. That's a bit risky for us. You know, people don't want to talk about that with their young people. They don't want to talk about that with their kids. But unfortunately, part of our society in terms of where people get their sex education, their ideas from, and not just young people, adults actually as well. So it is something that we need to look at in terms of how that changes people's perceptions of young people, and what, um, not young people, each other. What I mean by that, there are quite clear ideas that exist. So if you look, for example, Asian women, particularly East Asian women, are seen as like petite and docile and fun and just like not lacking kind of any substance <laughs> in terms of pornography and how that matches onto people's expectations dating-wise and people projecting that onto them. But then also how that forms a cycle about how people feel about themselves. And I touch upon it in terms of black men and the idea that they're supposed to be really sexually dominant and um, aggressive. And like, you know, if they're not like that, whether they have any excess in the success in the dating pool. Mm. We as human beings, all of our thoughts and ideas, our psyche is influenced by so many different things. And to be aware of that, because obviously our experience of healthcare as well is going to be as affected by all of these things as well. I'm talking about pornography. It's a, it's a really good point. People will think that these are very distinct separate things, healthcare and pornography, but that's how our, or young people's or whoever it is who's watching this, their thoughts and their ideas about certain racial groups are affected by that as well. I, I want to change gears a little bit, but it's kind of related, just the sense that all of our experiences and our biases are being fed into AI. And so these, these pre-existing ideas and notions that we have can be just replicated by AI. And you touch on this on the, in the book as well. And so, you know, you're highlighting that 
these these machine models and AI can do wonderful things. I think you use an example of how it could help with kind of the flow of patients or getting people to not miss their appointments when they're coming into your waiting room. But on the other hand, you can see that it can replicate these discriminatory or biased ideas at scale. And we've already seen that that can widen health inequities as well. What question do you think people in health tech should be asking themselves to help them to avoid replicating these major health inequities that we already have today? Yeah, so I think um, something else you said earlier kind of um, made me think of this point and just to say that I think often people are often tend to me and say, oh, what are your answers, what are your solutions? And it's good to start thinking of answers and solutions. But I have to be honest, the more and more I look at kind of science and healthcare, it really is the major problems have occurred due to lack of critique and being unwilling to have your work critically appraised by a wide range of people, right? And I don't talk about evidence-based medicine and peer review process, but often when peer review processes happen, it's actually quite a niche group of people and they're not going to see many more holes than you see. And therefore these things go out, whether that's a technological idea or an algorithm and people, you know, don't see the flaws. And, you know, people say this in advertising, like people put out an advert, they think it's really great. And how did that advert go out? Because everybody in the boardroom came from a very similar walk of life or was fine and didn't see how, you know, obsessing or how that had parallels with something that happened that was really awful. And it's the same in, it's same in healthcare. So I think there is a need for more critical analysis that goes beyond the niche kind of group of people that sit in Silicon Valley or sit in tech spaces. You know, some people say, oh, this is diversity. Um, we need more greater diversity in tech. And I think that is one solution, but we've also seen the pitfalls of diversity and just thinking that's the whole answer in terms of it's actually much deeper in terms of like where our, our thinking comes from and which ideas we're even recycling at a very foundational level. So I think really interrogating if it's had enough eyes on it is really important. I think it's a challenge because I am not somebody that is, um, I'm not a coder, I'm not somebody that works in technology. Um, I'm somebody that's observing it from an outsider health perspective. I particularly look at um, technology that is rolled out within my space. So like what is now quote unquote called femtech. And I get quite frustrated because often what happens within the tech industry, and this is because of how things are funded, originally the idea can start in a really noble place, particularly in reproductive health. It's to address a health gap, particularly one that is gendered and people like, let's fix this health gap, you know, um, or solve this issue. And it starts in a noble place place because of a personal experience, family or friends or something like that. And then because people start to get funding or they seek funding, it then becomes a profitability exercise. So the original aim, whatever that app or that idea was, then starts trying to cater actually to a subscription model and the aims and the ideas of the whole technology that was being developed completely changes, particularly in femtech space, the technology may not even get developed at all. So I think more critical analysis and more discussion and honesty at the start about 
if your original idea is even going to be able to float in the current marketplace of the startup and app sector, because I do not see them being able to make it through most of the time. These are really tough questions that we have to be brave enough to ask ourselves if we are kind of working in this health tech space and we want to make this kind of difference. I think it will be hard for people to hear that, but it's it's absolutely necessary for us to actually be able to make the change. If that's what we're setting out to do, how can you actually get there? Is you have to kind of face these hard truths. I always ask my guests to imagine that they are the dean of the university and ask them some variation of the question, what would you want clinicians to learn in university to better prepare them for making a positive impact in their working lives and in healthcare? But you, unlike anyone else on this podcast, have written a whole chapter on this very subject. So you're ultra qualified. I'd say, in fact, the whole book really is a good thing for medical students to read. So... I would like you just to take a moment to imagine you are the dean. How would you want future clinicians to be educated about the racial, historical and socio-political factors that affect health to help to reduce the inequalities we see today? What are the key principles that you would want them to grasp? I would say that there has to be an acceptance that I'm not saying that Divided is a perfect book. I think there are other books also that have been written that I cite within my book on this issue that is history is relevant to everybody in the science and medical space. Yeah, I think that is a very good starting point of acceptance. And I think a lot of people are dispute whether some of this history has relevant significance today. But as I've said, it's so important and foundational to some of the measurements we use, some of the research we're still doing, even the technology we're still developing. So not just those at medical school, but those across the science courses from pharmacy to, you know, um, biomedical sciences to even astrophysics, people need to have some understanding of the history of race, medicine, what is seen as the norm, the average body that was really pushed through enlightenment thinking embedded in their course. The second thing is, is that often people don't look at the experts they already have in their institutions and spaces. There will undoubtedly in most institutions be people that have looked at these issues, have been trying to uh, work on these within their relevant courses or spaces. And I think drawing on that local knowledge to see how you can make curriculum change within your own institutions and it's not just about curriculums because I also think you touched upon you know the studentship that I've had others have benefited from there are wider workings that I speak to in the educating differently chapter about the dynamics between institutions often in western spaces and the influx um, knowledge um, from you know other institutions whether that's a sister organization it has abroad whether that's it's um, international students and how it's treated, all of these things are deeply relevant when we talk about the legacy of colonialism in our institutions and spaces. So I think also having casting the net wider, because often people think, oh, I'm going to quote unquote decolonize the curriculum, you know, or I'm going to put some thinkers that are more expansive on the curriculum. But really, this is about how 
the university operates, um, when we talk about epistemic injustice, who gets to derive knowledge, whose knowledge is appreciated, um, who has access to the production of knowledge, um, we have to think much wider than just the students coming in, the educators in the system, but actually what is the role of the university. And increasingly in places, um, in a lot of places, um, in, including the UK, where we see you know, a lot of lecturer strikes, all of these kinds of things, while still the universities are expanding their campuses in other countries, it's actually to be more of a business model than necessarily a, a place of learning and education and asking some of these wider questions about who you're serving and what we're doing um, you know, as a university. Um, are we oppressing or are we actually uplifting individuals and who are we uplifting and for what purpose and what legacy are we trying to leave behind? So I think often decolonizing is a very expansive thing. There's many ways it can be applied, even when we're thinking about the university space um, and trying to make education more expansive than the university. Um, because ultimately what, what a lot of my work is even saying that a lot of the experts lie outside the university, right? So as a dean, how are you going to start factoring that in? Because you need to acknowledge that a lot of the experts are not even within your institution. And how do you start to create a better flow of discussion between those that are outside and inside um, the walls of your university? So I mean, if I was the dean, there were, I, there's so much more that I could say on the, the issue. I think a, a good starting place, obviously, is the acceptance that the history of race, health and empire is so integral um, to much of what is taught in that space and people not having a foundation of this even if there's disagreement in some areas, ignorance isn't an option. Mm -hmm. Those are powerful words. And so I think the only thing to say is they need to read this chapter. They need to read this whole book really to get a really full understanding of where you're coming from with this. It's so important that you make the point about expanding our knowledge and who we're speaking to, who we're exposing to our students and just kind of the whole fundamental basis of university as well so um so yeah i i couldn't i couldn't rate your writing any higher and so thank you so much for coming on the podcast your book is available to buy online and i will put a link to this in the show notes can you tell us where you can where we can follow you and your work uh yeah i'm still hanging in there on twitter just type in my name it's probably much easier um, and I've taken a TikTok break, but I will be back in the next few months when I have time doing some videos on some of the issues raised in my book, but also like any papers that come out that relate, uh, trying to break them down and delve into some of the things that they, they flag up. But yeah, I have a love hate relationship with social media. So I go on and I engage and then I disengage for many weeks at a time now um because i just need a bit of a break from uh from all the shouting yeah <laughs> i could understand that thank you again annabelle thank you so much take care thank you for listening to this episode of brand new doctor i hope it inspired you in your personal journey check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links 
And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor, subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.